Thank you, Judy, for those words which we're going to reflect on now uh, on, as we think about this ascension uh, theme. It's always been an interesting thing for me, intriguing thing, I guess, um, that in the Methodist Church, Ascension Day really hasn't been made that much uh, of. Um, as many of you know, I was brought up in an Anglican church. I was a chorister, uh, and Ascension Day uh, was always a day when we had in the evening uh, a service. This was a great highlight for a chorister, uh, not only because we had some great pieces to sing and a, a wonderful anthem, uh, but also because it was an extra we got paid extra as well, which was really good on the pocket money stakes uh, for that mercenary, wasn't it, as choristers that we liked. It's like weddings in those days. Um, during the season, uh, we sometimes did two or three every Saturday and got paid for those. Choristers loved weddings because they got paid for them, but that's a very different uh, issue altogether uh, for uh, us. Uh, but. In the Anglican tradition and other traditions, Ascension Day is a really important uh, day of celebration. Uh, and yet in the Methodist Church, it sort of comes and goes without even noticing. So to those of you who belong to Midsummer Norton Methodist Church locally, uh, perhaps you might like to just remind me next year when we're making plans uh, for our diary um, that we include um, some act of worship on uh, Ascension Day. In many ways, Ascension Day is just as important as Christmas Day. That might sound odd to some of you, especially if you haven't remembered it was Ascension Day on Thursday. Uh, but all that we celebrate at Christmas, that he came down from heaven to earth, as we said a few moments ago, on Ascension Day, the opposite happens. He goes from earth to heaven. It's the second part of Christmas, as it were. I was very tempted this morning uh, to choose a Christmas carol for our service, but I thought that those of you who know me would think he's finally lost it. But actually, the, the hymn that I was thinking of was the Christmas carol, Once in Royal David City, where in verse 2 it says, He came down to earth from heaven, who is God and Lord of all? Ascension and Ascension Day reverses that. So we could sing, He went up to heaven from earth. Who is God and Lord of all? And there's that wonderful promise in verse 5. And our eyes at last shall see him through his own redeeming love. For that child so dear and gentle is our Lord in heaven above. He's talking about ascension there. Uh, it's quite interesting that when we look at some of these hymns, rather than just get carried away with the sort of the emotion of the occasion, um, that there's so much in these uh, hymns. So ascension is a really important part of um, the Christian journey and of the church um, year. And this passage for us here uh, tells us what happens on that um, day. So this is 40 days after um, Easter. The number 40 is in the, in the uh, Christian faith and in the Jewish faith highly significant uh, for all sorts of reasons which we can think of uh, a number of times. 
But there is this period of 40 days. And Luke, who writes this, we know it's Luke because he says, in my former book, Theophilus, and if you look at the start of Luke's Gospel, you'll see that he mentions Theophilus um, there. He says, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. Check out Luke's Gospel, you'll see that is uh, true. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So this period of 40 days was, for the disciples certainly, a very strange time. Because Luke gives us the impression that he would just keep appearing. One minute he was there, the next minute he wasn't. We get that from the resurrection stories, that um, all of a sudden he can uh, appear into uh, the upper room and be amongst the disciples, and then he goes away. He's spending these 40 days preparing the disciples for what is to come. Not only in terms of the task which they have, but also preparing them for the reality that there would be a time when he would not be physically there amongst them. So the ascension is really significant. And we're told by Luke, verse 9, about the actual um, ascension, uh, what happened. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Summed up in one verse, notice, this incredible event. Over the centuries, many people have tried to portray that through art and through other means of what this might look like. Uh, and in some ways, we've got a little bit hung up on the word ascend because um, it, it's led us to think that sort of heaven is up there and hell is down there and we're middle, living in the middle bit. Well, that sort of language comes from a day, of course, when they believed that the earth was flat. So you either went up or you went down. It wasn't a day when they realised that we were part of a sphere. So here we have that he was taken up before their very eyes. Well, if you live on a sphere... There's only one way you can uh, ascend, as it were, to go away. It literally means he went away from them before their very eyes. We don't know what that looks like. We have no idea. But the most important thing we know is that he ascended and he is at God's right hand. So one of the first thing that ascension does for us is tell us where Jesus is now. Now if I hadn't have said that to you and I'd have just asked you the question, where is Jesus? I wonder what your answer to that would be. I'm reminded of a story of a minister who went in to do some school lessons into a school uh, and the constant question he would ask in those uh, uh, school classes um, and it was on the theme of ascension is, where is Jesus? And he asked this question uh, a lot of times to all the children in the various classes. 
Uh, that night, uh, so the story goes, it, uh, one of the children went home very upset to his uh, parents. And his parents said, what is the matter? And he said, well, we had, we, had, we had the local Methodist minister in today into our class. And the parents said, I'm sorry, has that upset you? Oh, no, 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 he said, that hasn't upset me. He said, but what upset me is that the Methodist minister has lost Jesus. Because he kept asking us all, where is Jesus? It was as if he didn't know. Well, the ascension tells us where Jesus is. So what's your answer? If we had more time, and if this wasn't um, a live broadcast, um, I'd perhaps pause if we were in the church building and ask you to write down your answer to the question, where is Jesus? For many people, their answer would be, well, he's here with us. We sing hymns such as, Jesus, stand among us in your risen power. Let this time of worship be a hallowed hour. That verse is actually wrong in two senses. One is it talks about Jesus standing among us in his risen power. So that's pre-ascension. So that's not admitting that the ascension um, is, has happened. And it's wrong in the second thing about it being a hallowed hour. Uh, because often our services go on longer than an hour in that sense. But we have a lot of our hymns which talk about Jesus standing among us. Uh, some of our preachers even, um, when they um, start a service or during their service, they talk about coming into God's presence, about Jesus being here. And yet the ascension says Jesus has been taken away taken up before their very eyes. He has gone to be with his Father, where he is seated at the right hand of God. As I put on my Facebook post uh, this week for Ascension Day, Ascension Day tells us that Jesus has gone back to work at home. And that's a wonderful truth. That Jesus is uh, returned to his Father, gone back home. And by doing that, he is there praying for us. And I have to say that I would much rather have Jesus at the right-hand side of God, praying for us each moment of our days, than this sort of old-fashioned idea that he's here with us still. As we'll find out next Sunday, what is here among us that we sense in a spiritual dimension is the presence of the Holy Spirit. More about that next week. But ascension tells us first of all where Jesus is. He has ascended. He has been taken up before their very eyes. A cloud hid him from the side. The cloud represents the presence of God. And there, says other parts of Scripture, he is interceding, he is praying for us. And for that we have much to praise God for. That we're never without prayer support. Because Jesus is exalted, he reigns on high with our God. Wherever we think heaven is, and that's a debate for another day, he is now united with his father. John's gospel reminds us the words of Jesus where he says, I'm going to have to leave you. 
but you won't be left on your own, for I shall send another comforter to be with you, the Holy Spirit. More of that next week. So the first thing that the Ascension does is tells us where is Jesus. The second thing which um, the Ascension does is notice what Jesus says they must do. Verse uh, 4. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptised with water, but in a few days you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit. So the second thing is, uh, the second W if you want to do it in, a, uh, in that sense, the first one was, where is Jesus? The second was, Wait, the instruction they were given, wait. Now, I don't know about you, but I often find waiting really, really hard. We are living now in a day when we are having to wait. We are waiting for the government's advice that, as many people are saying, we can get back to normal which is an odd thing to say, I think, because actually, what is normal? Uh, we, we continue to live our lives just in a very different and limited context. Uh, but it's been fascinating to me to hear and to observe and to listen to people's idea of waiting during this period of time. For some people, it's been a time of waiting, which has been a time of renewal. It's been given them time to either catch up with jobs that they've been meaning to get round to for a long time. For a lot of people, they've been, it's been a time of waiting upon God, recognising that it, previous to this, they were very busy people, they didn't have time for their prayers, they didn't have time for their Bible study, whatever it is. But now is a time, a new season for them, where they're able to wait upon God. There's a challenge in itself. During this lockdown period, I wonder how your relationship with God has changed, because if it hasn't, then we're wasting this waiting time. So for some people, this lockdown period has been a time of waiting which has been really creative, really powerful, really helpful. For other people, this waiting time has just been a huge inconvenience and frustration. And in actual fact, they've lost their patience and uh, they've decided to do things which actually is against government advice. So I've heard of people who have been going round to other people's houses. They've had, even before the rules were changed a couple of weeks ago, they've had people round in their gardens uh, they've visited, which was against the regulations, the government advice in this COVID-19 uh, season that we are in. They couldn't wait. They had to be doing something. They couldn't just sit and do as they were told, as it were. Waiting is a precious thing. Is a precious thing. And one of the really positive things which waiting time gives to us is permission and time to slow down. But it's not a 
doing nothing, although that's not a bad thing, especially if we've been busy. Waiting is something which has a purpose. If you're waiting for a bus or a train, you're waiting with a purpose, that the bus will come, that the train will come. If you go out to a restaurant and have a, a lovely meal and you have a waiter or waitress serving you, they don't just stand next to you at your table and wait, doing nothing. They have a purpose to serve your meal and to clear your table after the meal. So when Jesus said to the disciples, wait for the gift my father promised, he, didn't, he wasn't sort of saying to the disciples, well, you can just sort of sit there and, uh, well, just look around and, uh, well, you know, just be like that. Do absolutely nothing. The word, um, which I, I love the translation in some of the older passages, it was the word tarry which gave that sense of waiting with a purpose. I wonder how during this COVID-19 times you are waiting with a purpose. And I hope that purpose isn't just to put back everything as it was, as if what was um, our lives before this was perfect and wonderful and didn't wear us out and didn't get us tired and all those sorts of things. This is an opportunity to move into a new season when we're out of lockdown. Having waited upon God and just saying, Lord, how is it you want me to serve you, perhaps in a new way? How, Lord, Am I going to be able to, when I have to go back to work, if that's what it is, how am I going to keep that relationship with you close? So that I don't get too busy that I can't find time for you. This for us, um, for those of us who are Christians, is a waiting with purpose time, a tarrying time. It's not just getting frustrated because, oh, the government again haven't said we can get out and we can meet everybody. That is happening and we recognise that is happening and there's some real sadness around that people can't meet up with their extended families. They can't visit their loved ones in hospitals. They can't attend funerals in a wider sense of the wider family. That comes with frustration but that is important for us to um, by by those regulations. So at the moment we're waiting with a purpose. But let's also wait with the purpose of what God has in store for us. One of the things I've shared with our leadership team is for them uh, to be praying this month, <laughs> this approved, whether when they're listening, whether they remember to do this, to say, what might church look like when we go out of lockdown? Because if it's just going to look like how it looked like beforehand, then we've wasted this God-given opportunity to, as it were, recalibrate the life of the church. The disciples here were told to wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. They waited with a purpose and they were not disappointed. Because, as we shall see next week, the Holy Spirit came upon them with great power and their lives were changed and the communities in which they lived 
were changed. We pray that God would do that with us as well. That we would wait with that purpose. So that when the Holy Spirit falls on us afresh, we might be ready to do his will. And the good news is we don't have to wait until Pentecost Sunday next Sunday to do that. That can happen now, in these moments. When we pray, come Holy Spirit, come fall upon us. But you see, Jesus puts this here for the disciples so that they don't just rush out and do what they think is best. But that the work of God is resourced and inspired by the movement of the Holy Spirit. That's key to the work of the church. We could come up with a hundred good ideas of what to do in the church, but if they're not inspired by the Holy Spirit, we have not waited properly with purpose that God gives to us. Now, some people have taken this waiting to the extreme because uh, for many churches they are saying, well, you know, until we get to this particular point, it's a waste of time us going outside and sharing the good news. We just need to have a waiting season. And for some churches, that waiting season has been for decades. Just remember what I said earlier. It's about waiting with a purpose so that when God calls us to move, we're ready. And that's on a personal level and upon a corporate level as God's church. So the second thing is about waiting. The third thing is a W. So the first one was where is Jesus? The second one was waiting. The third one is the word witness. Verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. This word witness. If I'm called into court, which I've never been done so far, as a witness, I am asked to uh, tell truthfully by swearing an oath I am asked to tell truthfully what I understand to be the truth about whatever I've been called to court about. That same definition applies to the Christian. That Jesus tells us we are to be witnesses. We are to tell truthfully what we know and experience about a relationship with Jesus to, as it were, the courtroom around us. The courtroom around us is the whole world. It might be your workplace, it might be in your family, it might be where you socialise when you can, when we're out of this lockdown. That's all Jesus is asking us to do. He's asking us to just tell truthfully what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You don't need degrees for that, you don't need to go on courses necessarily for that, although they can help. But we're just called to be witnesses for Jesus. We can do that at the moment through social media, for example. Um, just reflect, for those of you on Facebook and things like that, in terms of your output on, on Facebook, how much of it is being a witness to Jesus and what he means uh, to us. So we are to be witnesses. But we do that in the power of the Spirit. Again, verse 8. 
You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. We don't do this on our own. We do it under the power of the Holy Spirit. And finally, we wait uh, with a purpose because we're going to be witnesses in the power of the Spirit. But there's a fourth W, and that is in verse 11. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven, the ascension, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. There will be a day when Jesus returns. And my guess is that when he returns, whatever that looks like and whatever we look like, one of the first things he will say to us if we're Christians is, and how did you get on with that task I left you with? You shall be my witnesses. And I wonder what your answer is going to be to that question. Oh, oh, well, uh, I didn't know what words to use. Oh, uh, uh, well, uh, um, uh, well, I just felt embarrassed by uh, saying anything to my friends and my, my family. Or oh, will it be, well, you know, I just told people how it was to be a Christian. And I left it with them. I didn't expect great uh, uh, numbers to be thronging or whatever it is. I just told them about what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to witness. That's the task in hand. That's the task which is now ours. You see, uh, in our Bible study, when we've looked at this passage, I've uh, noted that in verse 11, the second part of verse 11, it says, This same Jesus, comma, who has been taken from you into heaven, comma, will come back. Uh, and I've suggested that we live in that second comma who has been taken from you into heaven, that's the ascension. Then there's a comma, which is now, the present, will come back in the same way. That's Jesus' return. So we live in the comma of this verse. We've been given a task to do. You shall be my witnesses. And one day Jesus will return and say, and how did you get on with that task? And he's not asking the question there of, were you good people? Did you do your duty? He's saying, how did you witness to the truth and the transforming love of Jesus in your life with other people? That was Wesley's experience, both Wesley's experience, you see, that it was that strange warming of the heart that was the springboard through hymnology for Charles and through preaching for John. It was through those means that they were able to witness to the truth of the transforming love of Jesus in their lives. And they did it in the power of the Holy Spirit. The danger is in Methodism, we sort of raise both of them up as this incredibly talented and experienced and all those other words, men. No, they themselves would say, no, this is, this is a springboarded from our conversion that we simply told others about this love 
of Christ. Just read Charles Wesley's hymns and it is um, all through uh, writ large about those things. So do you see how important the ascension is for us? It tells us where Jesus is. It talks about waiting with a purpose for the Holy Spirit. It talks about witnessing. And it asks the question, why? Haven't you got... You see, the disciples just stood, sort of stood there. I think we would too as well. They just sort of stood there and the angel said, basically they're saying, haven't you got something to be getting on with? Why are you just standing there? Haven't you been given a task? And I think Jesus says that to us, those of us who are Christians watching this this morning. He says the same to us. Haven't you got something to be getting on with? Witnessing to my transforming love. Now I just want to say a, a very last word too, because I recognise there may be people watching this this morning who wouldn't regard themselves as Christians. And they may be thinking at this moment, what on earth is that's got to do with me? I just want to say to you good people, you know, you can be transformed by Christ's love. You can be witnesses to the transforming love of Jesus in your life. And it's the best decision, it's the best thing you will ever do in your life. I'm saying that not just because I read it, I'm saying that because that's my experience. That the best thing you can do in your life is to come to God. Be one of his followers. Be transformed by his love. And that will impact not just your life here on earth, but your life in the future. If I return back to that Christmas carol. And our eyes at last shall see him through his own redeeming love. For that child so dear and gentle is our Lord in heaven above. And he leads his children on to the place where he has gone.